Welcome to the Canine Classroom, a podcast for dog training professionals and dog enthusiasts where we discuss training, behavior, and everything in between. We're two friends and dog trainers that share a passion for dogs. We're constantly learning, exploring, and questioning each other's ideas as well as our own so we can become better at what we do. We're here to provide helpful advice, have open conversations, ask questions, get answers, as well as hear from colleagues and experts in the industry, regardless of method and training style. So take a seat and get your notepad out because class is in session. me right now but he's probably going to cause a total chaos storm at right. some point during this ordeal so. yeah i was out all day today and this guy is just like ready to go i haven't done anything uh-huh. so it should be fun yeah he's he like being really good when we start and that's how i know there's a storm brewing somewhere in this mm. dog he's saving <laughs> and, uh, it. yeah so but we can begin while he's quiet that's fine <laughs> all right well uh, why don't you tell us, I guess for those, did you guys just hear that? My dog just threw a bone across the room. Literally no. just flung the sound just settings are flung working. The fucking bone across the room. <laughs> Hit me in the leg. He's like five feet away. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, well, everyone, we have Kaz Brooks here. Hello. Hello. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us who you are, what you do, et cetera, et cetera. Um, okay. Well, that's kind of a big question. Uh, <laughs> we got time. We got plenty right. of time. Um, so obviously my name is Kaz. Uh, I am a certified professional dog trainer through the Certification Council of Professional Dog Trainers. Also a family dog mediator through um, Kim Brophy's course. And I'm hoping to sit for the Certified Professional Animal Trainer through the International Association of Animal Trainers Certification Board um coming up because i am currently a zookeeper and my primary experience is in working with uh wildlife so um i worked as the education director and then later the species curator and then later after that the training and enrichment coordinator for wolf park indiana which is a uh, wolf and wildlife facility located in battleground um, indiana and i was there with them for six years so um was a primary wolf caretaker and um, bison wrangler during my time. Bison um, Yeah, so I was a bison species curator when I was there. So I completely rebuilt their uh, their bison program and their bison husbandry and training program while I was with that facility. Uh, hand raised the uh, 2017 litter of pups with an incredibly talented cohort um, of people. There were seven puppies, seven puppies. Yeah. Seven puppies in that litter um, where we ended up keeping five of them or well, keeping three of them and then uh, importing two from a different facility and raising them as a single litter there. So hand raised wolf puppies and uh, currently a zookeeper at Roger Williams Park Zoo in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, where I work with all kinds of really cool animals that people probably haven't heard of. So I won't even Try. give us give us <laughs> one let us let me hear one go ahead what's the um have you heard of the match keys tree kangaroo oh yeah oh yes no i haven't oh no oh, they're very cute <laughs> do them a quick google actually they're pretty awesome they're a uh, really endangered species in the uh highlands of new guinea so pretty awesome 
marsupial. They literally, the name is exactly what they are. They are an arboreal kangaroo species. They're pretty wicked. Benturongs, you guys know what those are? Benturong? Benturong, yeah. They're they're in the civet family. So they Sounds look like something like... I'd call Vinny. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> hey, easy there. I mean, you could Google it and then you might be like, oh, all right. I, I just it. got offended by that, but I'm not sure I should be or not. Wait, I want to look uh-huh. it up. <laughs> Benturong? Yeah. Is it spelt how it sounds? Pokemon. Oh, wow. Look at you, Vinny. Whoa. Oh, man. Wow. That is, uh, yep. It looks like, uh, I don't know what it looks like. It's unique, just like Vinny. <laughs> we can, we can I obviously don't know how to spell. I can't find it, but. Oh, <laughs> Benturong. Can... Yeah. Oh, wow. Look at that thing. <laughs> so they're pretty cool. Uh, North American river otters as well. Uh, you know, your standard. That I've heard assortment. of before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so 13 goats, three alpacas, a guinea hog, um, barn owl, just a cool, cool assortment of animals that I get to work with and interact mm-hmm. with every day. And it's, uh, it's really awesome. So, uh, I probably could have given you a more professional bio had I known I needed to do that at the time, but you know, I just love animals. I love learning about animals. I love training animals and uh, you know, just try to get my hands on as many of them as I possibly can while they're still around. And that's, that's what I like to do. And that's that on that. <laughs> and yeah, no one saw you do the little, nope. the little gun thing right there. <laughs> Yeah. Except for me. <laughs> Finger guns were for effect. <laughs> and for Anthony only, apparently. <laughs> so um I'm kind of curious. So wait, tell me. I know you I think you, you when you and I have spoken on social media, you've told me, but I honestly can't remember now. So uh how did you get into like how did you get into like the whole uh wild animal area? Um so <laughs> like most of us, you know, we've always loved animals since we were very young. We've always kind of felt drawn to um, to dogs or, you know, for me as a horse girl growing up. Right? Uh, but I spent most of my adult life in Atlanta, so didn't have um, a lot of access to horses. So I just read all of the encyclopedias about them instead. Right. Read like everything that I possibly could about every animal that I possibly could, like all the zoo books. All the all the Steve Irwin shows, you know, that's like the <laughs> trivia question. You know, it's like, who do you want to be when you grow up? It's forever and five always Steve Irwin, you know. Um, so it's just always really fascinated with animals. I was really fascinated with the natural world. And um my degree is actually in ecological anthropology, which is the interface of humans and the environment. So how um human culture shapes environments and how environments shape human culture um and i promise i'll get to uh why that's relevant um in a little bit but um i was just always really fascinated with animals and i was always really interested in people as well hence hence my degree and i actually started working with animals professionally um via working in a dog rescue so i started out as a foster for um, a dog rescue called the dog liberator based in clearwater florida and they were a herding breed exclusive rescue. So they focused pretty much on border collies, but occasionally would take in Australian shepherds um, and German shepherds and another herding type dogs. I started as a foster with them and ended up running the Georgia chapter. That's where I'm from. Ended up running the Georgia chapter of that rescue. 
and personally fostering and adopting out over 60 different dogs uh, within this organization. And so uh, I was 19 years old at the time when I started, which is just pretty wild to like look back on. And from working with all of those different dogs, getting them from the shelter environment and getting them into my home and then seeing kind of what their needs were and then matching them uh, with their adoptive families. It was a great hands-on experience for me to learn a lot about dogs and to really become curious about their behavior because uh, around that time is when I started to notice trends in dog behavior, just having, you know, all of these different dogs of the same garden variety um, exhibiting similar behavior patterns made me pretty curious um, about why it was that they were doing that and then how I could fix it, right? Because I was a kid, so I was like a very fix-it mentality. Um, so from there, I started working at a facility um, in Atlanta under a trainer who specialized in behavior modification and worked a lot with aggressive dogs. Uh, at the time, she was the only trainer in the area that would take on dogs that had active bite histories or that had actively harmed other animals or, or humans. So she was very well known for that. Uh, she was also a positive reinforcement trainer. Uh, and so I started working at her facility coming from uh, the rescue world and she kind of took me under her wing and it was from working with uh, all of these very aggressive dogs. Uh, and I'm using aggression. It's a label, right? But like to get my point across, um, it's from working all of these really intense dogs. These, these uh, dogs with serious behavior cases and aggression cases uh, that I was able to segue into working with wolves because of the behavior modification experience. So I started with dogs, but always wanted to move on to more of a conservation wildlife um, field. I wanted to be able to synthesize my love for people and my love for animals. Uh, and obviously working in a wildlife conservation education setting really does that because we can talk about, you know, why animals do what they do and how we do what we do and how what we do affects what they do. Um, and this kind of forever cyclical loop of, of behavior, right? Um, so I didn't mean to go from dogs to wolves and then work with wolves as long as I did, but it was just kind of the logical step for me and for where I was in my career. Um, I didn't really feel like I could go from dogs to tigers. So I went from dogs to wolves and wolves to bison and now wolves and bison, foxes, coyotes, wolf dogs, et cetera, onto what I do now with some more, um, some more niche species. So it was always the long game, but definitely took kind of a long circuitous route uh, to get there, if that makes any sense. Nice, nice. Yeah, no, it definitely makes sense. Cool. <laughs> you just told it to us. Of course it makes sense. Come on. <laughs> cool. Um, do you, I'm just kind of curious, uh, do you have any particular animal that you've worked with that makes you nervous or that you don't really want to work with because it makes you nervous? Oh, I, I, I want to work with everything. So I I'm fascinated by all of them. There's not really any animal that I've ever encountered that I've been like, you know, what? I really just don't like that animal. Like, even if I don't like them, I can still find something really unique about mm -hmm. them. Um, where I just, I want to know, why it is that I don't like them. And then I kind of lean into that a little bit. I'm like, oh, is it, is it like, so let's say snakes. A lot of people are really uncomfortable with reptiles, particularly <laughs> with training reptiles because they're used to, um, you know, wearing, wearing a, a bait bag and having a clicker and being able to deliver reinforcement really rapidly and, and really easily And transitioning to working with something like a boa. You, you can't do that. You know, that animal eats 
uh, on a schedule, but it's not like you can have a very high rate of reinforcement when you're training a snake. So it, it kind of encourages people to think outside of the box um, and the ways that they work with those animals. And that can be really intimidating. Um, a lot of people just kind of don't want to do it. Um, for me, it was birds, specifically macaws, only because I remember uh, my half sister growing up had two hyacinth macaws in their home and I couldn't have been even nine years old. And I remember walking to their house and seeing how a big these birds were and then B just how big their beaks and their talons were. And I distinctly remember putting both of my little baby hands like in my pockets and just (laughs) wanting to take my hands out of my pockets uh, for the rest of the time I was in their house because I was like, "Mm -mm, that is a dinosaur. And I remember that from a child, you know, and I've never really had an opportunity to work uh, with birds until coming to the facility that I am at now. And um, I know that they're incredibly intelligent. I know that they're incredibly social. There's all kinds of science out there about the things that they uh, can do, what they can see, their cognitive abilities, you know, and knowing that you're working with something that is that intelligent and also that ancient and also that dangerous <laughs> uh, can be pretty intimidating, but I want to do it. Like, I'm really excited to do it. You know, um, I'm excited to work with the reptiles. I, I work with the Komodo dragon right now and I love it. She's wonderful. Uh, and so there's not really. <laughs> wonderful. She's, she's, she's wonderful. wonderful. Okay. She's absolutely <laughs> wonderful. Um, you know, I so there's a, a lot of animals. I had a client once who, uh, so I go to this house, never met these people or the dog before. And the dog's like really, really just, he has a bite history towards people really has no interest in me is like lunging all his might against the leash, like across the room. So then the daughter comes down the stairs with her, what I thought was a stuffed animal. So (laughs) she sits on the couch. She's like right near me. I take another look over. I'm like, that stuffed animal looks like it moves. Because I'm too busy focused on the dog, you know? It's like this two-foot-long lizard. And I'm like, what the fuck (laughs) is that? So I start nervous. I start nervous laughing because I don't like reptiles. Like, I am not a reptile person (laughs) at all. Uh, I think they're great. I started nervous laughing. I'm like moving closer towards the dog that's trying to bite me because I got so uncomfortable. Like I had to make the little girl bring the freaking thing upstairs. I was like that. That thing cannot stay here. Uh, No, they're so wonderful. So embarrassed too. Because you know when your face turns red and your ears start getting warm and you know like that you're red. That's what happened in that session. Yeah. Well, I think reptiles are great, but I think they're a common, they're a common animal that people get nervous around. You know, um, I think people tend to fear what they don't know. Um, and there is not, you know, and, and we tend to fear what we don't have a lot of exposure to. And so, you know, growing up, I didn't have a lot of exposure to reptiles and we had like venomous snakes, you know, out in the, out in the wilderness. And it was like, okay, like give a healthy birth um you know around the snakes but we didn't we didn't have like snakes in the household we didn't have tegus and iguanas and all that in the household you know so um i think there's a healthy level of apprehension that comes with working with an animal like that they are incredibly powerful and they are quite intelligent they're also very agile you know and they're very much out of a lot of people's wheelhouse so i think it's a pretty logical 
animal group to to be uncomfortable with but you don't have to stay like that you don't have, you can choose to maybe i'll come this. maybe i'll come to the zoo and you can uh yeah i don't know I, I don't know man i'm scared of lions and tigers and i don't think it's because of a lack of understanding those things scare the <laughs> shit out of me i'll yeah. take a reptile you can have a three-foot reptile i'm ready i don't care i'll deal yeah. with it but i'll let a tiger no way Right. And I, so oh, yeah. I have not, I've not had the opportunity to work with big cats. That is definitely um, something that I would like to do. Small cats scare me. <laughs> cats, cats are nature's ultimate predator. They're too so smart. I think, yeah. So I think cats should have a much greater respect than, um, than they do. Our, our house cats and on the same, on the same level that your large cats, like, like tigers and, and jaguars and, and lions as well, because, uh, yeah, they. I think they are the ultimate predator. <laughs> really, really, uh, oh, yeah. nature's ultimate, ultimate uh, hunting machine. Terrifying. And um, a lot of people don't understand their behavior. You know, which is cool. You're looking at behavioral trends now, and uh, you know, behavioral science community trends now, and you're seeing a lot of people begin to pay attention to uh, cat behavior and cat social preference, and like what we've done to cats, or maybe what we've not actually done to cats through our genetic manipulation of cats, and how some of their, you know, innate instinctual behaviors are um, left intact. And like, what does that mean for their welfare? So I love to see it, you know, all of this, this cat training and this cat behavior focus coming out, because I think it's really important. Um, and we see this in zoos all the time. I mean, zoo training is, has been around for as long as zoos have been around. And um, I think that big cats, small cats, mid-sized cats, all cats deserve a healthy level of respect. <laughs> Uh, just as much as a, you know, as a tegu or an anaconda would too. So, so when you're walking into a situation and it's going to be either an anaconda, a dog, or a cat, do you have like a baseline where you're starting, or are you starting in a totally different place for each animal? What do you mean, like a baseline for, for what? So, like if you're if you're gonna work with an animal for the first time. Are, is there a place you start that's the same across the species of different animals or are you just like like do you have like a like a protocol specific to like I know you said you don't do cats but like cats versus reptiles versus dogs versus wolves or is there stuff that's a constant amongst the different um, so for me, for me personally, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna work with an animal, I mean, the first thing I want to know is uh, that animal's health status, you know, their age, um, if they have any pre existing ailments, or if they, you know, basically, were they recently just treated with a medication, or do they have? And that comes treated? before even like what mm -hmm. what kind of animal? It is. Yeah, I kind of want to get a baseline health understanding of the animal, and then I want to have uh, as much information about that individual animal. Um, that I can like either from people who have known that animal for a long time. So let's say it's a dog, like obviously the, the client uh, or the guardian or the owner, whatever terminology we want to use today. Um, you know, you want to get as much information that you can about that individual, um, their, <clears throat> their known health status. I would like to see uh, the individual, I would like to see the individual animal just existing in their own space as well. This is like, if I could just wave my magic wand, obviously working in a facility, each facility is going to have their own procedures for the way that you do and do not interact with, with any given animal. So 
In a zoological institution, no. The way that you would work with an animal like an anaconda is going to be very, very different than the way that you would work with like an ambassador rat or a free-flighted macaw or an elephant. All of those things are going to have very rigorous protocols and procedures um, that outline the the when and how and for how long you can um, interact with, with an animal. But for me personally, um, if I if I was just going to have a hypothetical situation where I was going to train three radically different animals, say, you know, like anaconda, cat, and a dog, um, I would want to understand as much as I can about that individual's history uh, before beginning. And then I would like to have some kind of observational opportunity, either via a video, so I can see that animal interacting uh, in its own space and um, understand the the target behavior, like what what is the aim, right? Like, are we trying to get this anaconda to shift into a, a back of holding? Are we trying to get the dog to lay on its bed? What are we What are we trying to get the animal to do? What is the animal already doing? Uh, how is that animal's environment already set up? And I like to have all of that kind of information on the front end uh, because I am an anxious prone individual. I do not like to walk into a situation as we've already discussed where I don't feel remotely prepared for something. Um, and I don't think it's fair to the animal or the client or myself to just waltz into a situation where I am supposed to be the principal trainer for an animal and not have any of that information prepared. I don't think it's fair to just snap, gather all of that stuff, you know, right then and there. So um, some of the other things I would look for is like, what is that animal's learning history? Has it had training before? What kind of training has an animal had experience with? What was its early social life like? If you know it, so let's say an anaconda, you, you probably don't. Right. A lot of those animals have just come from different facilities. Thankfully, there's um, keeper notes and massive records on all of these animals that come from from zoo to zoo to zoo. Um, but if someone just rescued a snake, corn snake in their backyard and they're like, we don't know, but we wanted to stop doing this thing. Uh, we would check as much data as we could on uh, what we do know about the animal <clears throat> in that moment, if that uh, if that makes and any sense. And so I guess that kind of leads to what I was thinking, which is how do you develop relationships with with uh, all these different uh, animals? Like, what do you like? Do you you don't just go in and like, OK, this is the target behavior. We're going to teach this like is there or do you or is there a window of opportunity where you can start trying to create a relationship with the individual animal before reaching whatever target behaviors you're trying to teach? Um, so personally, I, I prefer a relationship-centric model uh, of working with animals. I think that's really important. I I don't think that um, it's possible 100% of the time, all of the time, you know? Um, ideally, yes, I would love to be able to spend time just, again, watching that animal um, throughout different periods or different, different types of interactions. Like, what does that animal do during feeding time? How does that animal interact when it's handled? How does that animal interact when it's being shifted from one enclosure to another? How does that animal interact um, when its primary caregiver is present or a conspecific is present? All of those different things, uh, I think are really important indicators for how um, a behavior is going to go or how a relationship um, uh, you know, can affect behavior. Um, but sometimes we don't get that opportunity, right? Like sometimes you just kind of have to come in and say, well, let's try this. <laughs> um, <clears throat> So if I can develop that relationship, um, 
you know, with animals that I'm working with primarily. So we'll use these goats that I work with. I work with 13 different goats and they have um, some training, but, but not a lot. And they're a lot of fun. Like I like to just hang out with them. I like to get to know them. I like to get to know their different personalities, the things that they do, the things that they don't do. Um, so then when we start thinking about training plans and, and what we want to do with the individuals, we know how those individuals function within the group. We know how they all get along. We know, um, if something's just not going to work. Right. And with the wolves, obviously I hand raised those animals. So I've known them their whole lives. So by the time we started doing some of the really complex training sequences, we kind of already had an idea of how these animals were, or were not going to respond. Um, to specific stimuli. But with clients, sometimes we don't have that opportunity, right? You're seeing a dog for the first time and you're relying on client input. And then what the client told you is very opposite than what <laughs> than what you see in that moment. And sometimes you can't always rely right on your relationship. I've also worked with animals um, that have not really liked me at all. A lot of the work that I did uh, with the bison while I was at Wolf Park um, those animals had a lot of negative conditioning towards people. So they did not like me and we had to still work around that and, and work through that. Um, I have worked with wolves that did not care for me very much at all, but that doesn't mean that I didn't have a relationship with them. Right. It just wasn't a positive <laughs> relationship <laughs> with those individual animals. So, um, if I can develop a positive relationship, yes, I'm going to do that. But if my presence is going to worsen a negative relationship, then, you know, I'm not, I'm not interested in, that, in pushing that farther than I need to. I'm sorry. I got distracted by your cat and dog behind you. The cat the totally came over and started instigating the shit out of your oh, dog. Yeah. <laughs> like as you're discussing this, <laughs> she came over or he yeah. started swatting the tail and then like boxing. That was great. Uh, he's <laughs> such an ass hat. He cannot, <laughs> he will not leave my dog alone. And uh, yeah, he's very crazy, affectionate though. to the dog and he loves the dog, but then also likes to beat the heck out of the dog. And the dog is very tolerant until he isn't. And then he just explodes into this big motion blur of, <laughs> or whacks him with a, with a pot. No, don't bite him. That's very rude. Don't do that. He was sleeping. Thank you. All right. So back to the, um, <laughs> to stay on topic. Um, sure. I know I got distracted by the cat, but everyone listening can't see it. So I guess it's probably not as funny for them, <laughs> but um let's stick with the wolves i guess because um yeah. they're similar in ways and maybe they're not and that's what we're gonna talk about a little bit with dogs sure they don't like you so now what the wolf a wolf yeah yeah we're going some wolves they don't, <laughs> like, they don't like you they're like yeah those wolves are like fuck this person i don't like you so how are you approaching the situation differently then um, I think that's like every question with animals is there, it, it depends. There's no one concrete solution. There's no one concrete answer um, that we can give largely. It would depend on uh, at what capacity are you interacting with that animal? You know, if the animal doesn't like you and there are other handlers available that that animal does like better and you don't have to work with that animal, then like, should you? That's that's a question that you should ask. You know, is this necessary for me to um, work through this or get this animal over this particular issue? Or if I'm that much of an aversion, 
to this animal, you know, if an animal, if, especially wolves who are very risk averse, if you have a wolf under managed care uh, um, <clears throat> as well, because my experience with wolves are wolves exclusively under managed care. So I think that's really important because that is different uh, than wolves in in natural conditions. Right. Um, our, the wolves I raised were obviously socialized um, to humans really, really well. We did a lot of work. Um, and some really cool work at that with them. So is that what you mean but, by just to clarify what managed care means? Managed care, yeah, under under human care. From um, like the time of birth type of thing? Yes, or in captivity. It's just another way to say, you know, wolves in a, in, wolves in a captive environment. Versus um, the other type is what? Natural conditions. So that would be wolves in the wild. I personally don't like to say the wild because the wild doesn't exist. It's a concept. So it, the wild doesn't exist anymore right now as we understand it. So when people think of the wild, they think of like untouched wilderness and like beautiful cascading waterfalls. And like, there's not a centimeter of this planet that we haven't goofed up with our carbon footprint and like our, our meddling as humans, right? So uh, natural conditions for a lot of individuals, a lot of individual animals, they don't exist anymore. So mm -hmm. uh, animals under managed care, essentially animals in a captive environment, it's just more correct now to say managed care um, as opposed to animals that are living in more natural conditions or animals that are uh, living in areas in which they are not directly influenced uh, by humans is, is the difference there. So my experience again is animals under managed care or animals in a captive environment. Additionally, our wolves uh, or socialized wolves, so hand raised and socialized, which can be different. Some facilities do not have socialized animals. And the way that I would work with a socialized animal and the way that I would work with an unsocialized animal may or may not be different. It just depends on what it is that I'm doing and um, all of the other contents of the in the environment, really. Uh, so if I am dealing with an animal who uh, is so an animal like a wolf who they are, generally speaking, risk averse. They do not want to escalate into all out conflict behaviors. It's very expensive for them to do. It's expensive for most animals to do. Um, and it puts them at a, a risk of, of um, being very obvious with their conspecifics as well. So if one animal escalates to uh, a fear-based agonistic uh, behavior sequence it can sometimes draw the attention of the other animals and then they can get themselves in trouble with the other animals within that social unit uh, and again just very expensive behavior to to engage in just a full out agonistic assault all right um, so if an animal was doing that to me and i had the ability to completely recuse myself from that situation i would i just wouldn't work with that animal if there were other handlers who did have a better relationship available. If there were handlers who the animal did not behave in that way towards and who therefore could meet all of the needs of that individual animal, I would just take myself out of that situation because we know when an animal is in that heightened state, their ability to learn is affected, you know, their ability to kind of like, you know, I don't want to label too, too many <laughs> things here trying to keep it as scientific as i can for you guys you pair of smarty pants um <clears throat> no science no science. you don't really want to you don't really want to push through an animal <laughs> say it say it just say it. Vinny, just Vinny, say it say it you know when an animal is hitting the fence and, and you know or the barrier and they're they're snarling and they're growling and they're frothing at the mouth and, and they're freaking out that's not the opportune time where i'm gonna like bust you just gotta out pet them right they gotta sniff your hands yeah, and then they'll be fine like 
I'm not going to coo at them gently and bust out my clicker and start throwing treats at them. You know, like maybe eventually if I did that long enough and hard enough and consistently enough, I might see a breakthrough in behavior. But what I would probably actually be doing is just allowing this animal to exist in a state of duress. And I don't want to do that if there are other handlers who are available for that animal who would not cause that animal to react in that way. So if that animal didn't like me, I'd say, okay, this animal doesn't like me. And that is not an animal that I'm going to consider myself a primary handler for. If I had to work with this animal, an animal who was actively showing aggression um, or serious fear and avoidance of me, and it was inhibiting their ability to thrive in a managed care environment, or it was inhibiting my ability to care for them, then we would have to think very carefully about what we would want to do and how we would go about creating alternative behaviors uh, for this animal um, or creating just a, just a healthier care pattern or maybe even introducing a new handler, right? Like, okay, if it's not going to be me, maybe it can be somebody else. Maybe I'll take someone else and I will teach them what they need to do to develop a positive relationship with this animal. So then I can remove myself from the situation. That's, that's, normally what I would do because I just don't think it's necessary to um, force, I don't use the word force, but I don't, I don't think it's necessary to like work an animal through a, a, a distaste for a person that is obviously that strong. Um, if that makes any sense, I can see it in my yeah, brain. So I'll picture it, person. I'm picturing a wolf real angry in my mind. Right. And like what I would do, I mean, a disassociative moment, watching myself do things around this animal. Of course, you guys can't see that, obviously. <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, if if I, again, if I had to work with them, um, if it was, I could just tell that the animal is uncomfortable. Let's say they're showing some um, avoidance and conflicted body language, but they're not actively aggressing at me. Then we would start to just do some positive association. Uh, work just kind of like you would do with uh, a nervous dog, maybe that you're meeting for the first time. Some approach retreat exercises, maybe some pattern games. It's really just dependent on what the animal has been exposed to, what the animal's learning history is, and and really what their environmental setup is. If it is a free contact situation, um, that means a person finds themselves in open airspace with, uh, let's say, a wolf. Wolf Park is a free contact facility, so... Um, all of the staff and, and caretakers were in there with the animals. We weren't necessarily hands-on with them all of the time, but we were inside their habitats and enclosure spaces to clean, to change their waters, to make sure that their um, their enclosures were still secure and everything. Um, so if it was a free contact animal and we were having uh, in, in an incident would occur in which an animal would actively show avoidance or um, agonistic behavior towards a handler same thing we would we would have the handler um step step out and then we would reevaluate the relationship that that individual has um with with that that animal so usually in in a free contact situation if an animal is actively coming at someone we have grossly overestimated our relationship um the objective there was to never have them feel like they even needed to do that, right? So if you find yourself in a situation where a wolf is trying to take your leg off, you've really goofed it, you've pooched it, if you will, um, somewhere way back in the timeline, not just in that moment, but if an animal really, if a socialized 
well, for the wolves that I raised felt the need to, to actively come after their handler. We, we definitely, um, missed some, some major. We deserved it in other words. Yeah, we deserved it basically. That's a scientific it's, it's... term for that as we deserved <laughs> it. Yeah. Great. <laughs> oh, so I wanted to, I wanted to me. stop there. <laughs> I wanted to stop there and just, and, and ask you because, um, with dogs, a lot of times people get a dog as a puppy dog is socialized with its family and then maybe the dog doesn't like strangers or mm -hmm. maybe a dog is rescued and likes one person and then just like hates another family member because maybe a bad experience or prior history with someone that looks similar whether it's like male or or whatever um in your case it seems like these wolves are exposed to everyone at the same time almost in the same way so like what would make them have a preference for someone versus someone else? Like, is it just like, Hey, I don't like you because of like, like, do you guys ever get to the bottom of stuff? Like, Oh, like, you know, Johnny bumped into that dog, uh, that, that wolf a week ago and looked at it weird. And now the wolf doesn't like him. Or is it just seem like they're like targeting different people for different reasons? Um, so that's a lot of questions. I know that's <laughs> part of my problem. <laughs> that's a lot of questions. It was part of my problem too, because I'm going to try to answer all your questions, and then I'm going to be like, I think I. I guess I, the I main, the boiling down to the main <laughs> question is like, since you guys are all there, and no one's really like the owner or handler or whatever you want to call it, why would they just all of a sudden be like, I don't like this one person versus like I just don't like all people, like all strangers, yeah. or that's kind uh, of so like. So that okay, so that is kind of what I thought. You yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so our animals. Uh, so we're speaking specifically about my time um, at Wolf Park. So I was with Wolf Park from 2016 until 20, the end of 2022. Uh, and during that time, again, I, I hand raised the um, 2017 litter. So this was um, five wolf pups, uh, North American gray wolf puppies, and we did not expose them to everybody all at all at the same time um the socialization process that they underwent was um very much planned out very very complex um uh, we took a smattering of material from experts all across the social puppy development um field so we used a lot of suzanne clothier's um enriched puppy program work um we used our previous experience of Wolf Park's uh, just 50 year history of hand raising wolves with no serious human uh, injuries to humans. Um, and what we knew about wolf social behavior and, and wolf biology and critical developmental periods, we worked uh, with different researchers that had done a lot of work with uh, wolf development as well to curate a socialization experience for these puppies that optimized resiliency really in the animals, making sure that they were exposed to enough stimuli and enough different types of people that they had a um, relatively robust um, socialization experience, but then also have had demonstrated recovery ability for novelty. Uh, if that makes sense. I'm trying to condense. It was a lot of work. We actually worked for an entire year before raising those animals, just on creating that program and perfecting that program before we even had those puppies on the ground to just kind of give an idea of, of how intense this process actually was. 
there was a team of 15 different people who actually raised these these five puppies as well and they were um there was a primary team of puppy raisers that were pretty much with those animals since they we got them since they were born uh, all the way through their lives. I was one of those individuals. And then we had kind of a rotating cast of really experienced uh, people coming in and assisting us with raising them. So they got um, new people introduced to them as they moved along their developmental timeline. But it wasn't just like flooding puppies with with people. Um, so in that, though, you know, we know just like with dogs, just like with humans, just like with babies, um, it's not a matter of if you're going to screw up. It's kind of a matter of how you're going to screw up, right? So it's like law of probability. Like you can't, it's not going to be perfect. Like they're not going to be bomb proof. And even the most talented trainer in the entire world, like they cannot predict all life scenarios, right? So just the goal is that we could give them enough experiences that they could be like, oh yeah, that's like weird, but kind of reminiscent of something that I've experienced that wasn't too terrible. And then pairing those experiences with primary security people that they have known their entire lives. So that's a, that was very much, again, that relationship centric kind of training where like, if I, let's say Vinny, I brought you into a wolf enclosure and you grabbed the tail of one of the wolves that I raised, like that's on me. You know, you know I what I mean? To see that. <laughs> One, I would end you. Two, the wolf would. End you. Oh, I'd um, love to see that too. <laughs> so you know that is a breach of the trust that that individual animal has in me, right? So we were able to introduce some of the scarier concepts. Let's say like umbrellas or golf carts or loud trucks or speakers or or brightly colored galoshes. We were able to eat more easily introduce these things to the animals. Uh, because we ourselves as their primary caretakers were wearing them first and then people that we would introduce with them would have them right and so we established this trust-based relationship with these individuals that uh, we were positive to neutral stimuli for these animals at best we we didn't ever punish them obviously we didn't even take anything away from them uh, and anything that we introduced to them we were kind of doing as an extension of ourselves so if i brought you into that enclosure the animal would look at you and they'd look at me and i'd be like okay well i've known kaz my entire life and kaz has not done anything too terribly bad to me in my entire life and then here's this guy and he's just neutral he's not doing anything either so like that's okay Right now, if you went in there by yourself and you started doing cartwheels, they'd have a radically different response to you. <laughs> right. But if you went in with me and you started doing cartwheels, they would have a radically different response to you as well than if you went in there doing cartwheels alone. But it jeopardizes that trust that the the wolf and their their handlers had. So they had they did have a team of primary people and it ended up being staff. Um, so we also had tiered systems of, of staff clearance. So you had um, people who had the highest level of clearance were essentially able to do everything with those animals, uh, including take in novice and inexperienced individuals in with those animals because that level of trust and knowledge of that individual was so deep. So those would be the people who had raised them for their entire life or who had been around for a majority of their life or people who had significant enough handling uh, or previous handling experience that they could handle um, an adult wolf, if that makes, am, am I answering 
your question? Okay. Yeah, no, that cool. was very thorough. Yeah. Okay, I good. try. I have uh, it's on too thorough sometimes. I'm sorry. <laughs> you have a part two to your question, Vinny, because I have a I have a question. No, you can go. So <clears throat> since we're on the topic of wolves for a second here, um one thing you mention a lot on social media is that it is that wolves are some of the most studied species and yet there's a lot of misinformation out there about them. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I know one of the things that you and I had discussed a little bit about was uh, a recent um, like interview or documentary on on wolves uh, that was on um, a big network uh, station earlier this year. Um, yes. And there was apparently a lot of misinformation in this um this like documentary or not even doc- i don't know what it was maybe it was a 30 minute interview on like wolves yeah i think it was the uh, it was the, the mark beckoff one. interview about um alpha wolves do exist and it it wasn't that there was misinformation was the, wait was that the 60 minutes one or no i think that's is it was that what oh, it was? that's the six. I know it's your, that was a separate thing. That oh, one. Yeah. That's the that was the one. That, yes, that was the one. I think I'm referring to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so there, there is. There's a lot of misinformation uh, about wolves that's floating out there. There's a lot of misinformation about animals in general. Well, yeah. Right? This is where. So, Just, like, we were we were talking before in the the group chat. We were saying uh, we were talking about that that Netflix special. Uh, uh, chimp like, empire chimp empire chimp empire so like i i know Vinny watched it uh recently i just finished watching it and... i watched one episode so no spoilers oh i, wait, I can't wait to tell oh wait i can't wait to <laughs> tell you. i won't do it on here because i don't want everyone else but I'll, i'm going to be texting you after all like the spoilers <laughs> but um no but uh you know i was watching it and i was i mean it's super interesting and fascinating but then i was also sitting there saying like how do i know what they're saying is accurate you it's know? netflix bro so... it's netflix of course it's accurate <laughs> no no but really so like it makes me it like makes me think like you know what is like what is actually accurate because when you and i spoke earlier in the year about like that uh, 60 minutes special there was a lot of things that were very questionable, you know? And then once you and I started chatting, I was like, whoa, okay, well, that's totally different information than what was actually said to the public. Yeah. So um, wolves are a charismatic species. You know, everybody, they're very polarizing species. People are fascinated by them. People are drawn to them. People are repulsed by them. And the reasons for that are many um you know culturally historically politically they're they're wrapped up um in all of it somehow wolves tend to find themselves at the epicenter of every conversation um and that's no different in dog training either um fortunately and unfortunately you know um there are a lot (laughs) of um people who feel connected to wolves um spiritually right and you know and and those come from uh a lot of misinformed places sometimes as well it's really a really complex issue i'm not going to go on a giant diatribe about it for you guys go ahead uh no i just did it actually just did 
um, an interview with a, with a PhD uh, student who's over at um, Wild Sparrow Wolf in, in Rama, New Mexico about this exact topic, actually. Uh, so where can we where can we listen to that? <laughs> I don't think he's published it. He's not published it. Uh, yeah. Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> research, um, just on people's perceptions of of wolves, but uh, essentially in North America, um, the 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 hatred of wolves comes from um, colonization and, and European worldviews, as mm -hmm. you know, bringing them overseas, uh, being associated with with witchcraft and and all of that good stuff, and um, you know, manifest destiny, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, but because they were so maligned, people also were really, really attracted to them. Um, and so we would call them a charismatic megafauna, same way as bears, same thing as panthers, jaguars, also a North American species. If you guys didn't know that, they are actually native <laughs> to New Mexico. Many's eyes just got really big, like, oh, God. Um, he's going so hiking there this they summer. They tend to be. <laughs> oh, you are. Let's go. No, watch no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, and they tend to be animals that um, people really want to pay attention to. Moose, uh, you know, are another one. Bison, another one. Charismatic uh, megafauna. So people are attracted to wolves, and then they kind of project things onto wolves that suit their needs be that need um political be that need ecological be that need behavioral or spiritual uh, again wolves kind of find themselves at the center of this um a lot of times so also um when we don't really understand something we tend to relate it to the thing that it is most closest to in our mind and a lot of people in North America are not going to have the opportunity to come face to face with wolves like like I've had that opportunity. A, a lot of people in North America are not going to have the opportunity to have um, studied with the people that I've studied with and, and spent the time with the animals that, that I've spent with. They only see wolves through National Geographic documentaries or zoo books, you know, or posters or three wolf moon T-shirts. OK, this is the only way that they're going to get exposure um to these animals right and so they kind of they know that they like them but they don't know a lot about them and so they'll do like most people do which is a quick cursory google search of like 10 wolf facts <laughs> right and then you get the internet at your at your fingertips so a lot of really great information is out there uh for the public on wolves but a lot of really really bad information is out there for the public on wolves too um, and people tend to, again, not having the experience with those animals, relate them to the things that they do have experience with, which are their dogs. And that's a lot of times where things can uh, go go awry, right? So people want to suggest that their dog, um, you know, is very wolf-like. You know, they're huskies. We'll say, oh, I have a husky, you know, and they're, most, they're the closest breed related um, to wolves. That's actually completely <laughs> untrue. Uh, the amount of genetic diversity what? between uh, what? No. Uh, the amount of genetic diversity that exists between all canids on the planet is like you know very very small it's like 0.02%. Don't quote me on that because I'm not a statistician, but it is a very small number. And when you think of the grand scheme of biodiversity that's on the planet, you know, 0.02% or whatever small number it actually ends up being, don't hate me scientists, um is actually 
a really big difference, right? So huskies and, and wolves or modern huskies and modern wolves are not really that genetically similar at all. And yet this per pervasive idea exists that they have a husky and therefore it's a more primitive breed and it needs a certain type of hand or it needs a certain type of leadership or it has to live in a certain type of way. And all of that is hot garbage. Is what is hot. This is hot garbage. <laughs> okay. Oh. Um, you know, um, another popular thing, and, and I think what you're alluding to, talking about wolves is everyone is super obsessed with this idea of dominance and social dominance and leadership and what that looks like and and how they can emulate that in their house with their pack because they have three dogs that live in their house and they assume that their three dogs are a pack because they call it a pack, not because they understand packs or because their dogs are actually a pack, but it's because it's something that they're projecting onto their dogs based on their idea of how wolves live. That's a problem, right? <laughs> Does that make sense? Or do I just sound nutterbags? Right? Say it again for the people in the back. Nutterbags. Nutterbags. I want to go backwards though and, like, <laughs> and dig into some of these things uh, just to yeah. clarify. So <laughs> I want to start with the husky thing because that was interesting, and and I guess I want to separate this between like the dogs and the wolves, and then just dogs amongst themselves. So like, we can agree that like a husky huskies can act, like in general act differently than like golden retrievers or like a poodle. So because I like I like to hate on these things as much as the next dog trainer, but I also try to understand like where the common the common human being is kind of getting this stuff mm -hmm. from you know like like if you've been around a german shepherd and then like relate that to like walking around with a beagle or a chihuahua like you feel that there's a difference there yeah so so yeah i don't know like i just wanted to start there because I, I feel like we kind of gloss over that like oh it's like it needs a certain handler because I don't know. Sometimes I can see where people get ideas like that from. So I think it comes from starting um, in terms of the dichotomy between the husky and the wolf. Mm -hmm. um, I think it comes from people's perceptions of how wolves do and do not interact based on their exposure to passive messages about wolves in the media or um, their experience with wolves in the media. So usually those Nat Geo articles with wolves in full agonistic pucker and blood all over their face because <laughs> they're eating, you know, that's when people think of wolves, that's what they think about, right? Yeah. They don't think of what wolves are doing in their downtime. They don't think of wolves and pup raising and, and a lot of just like social amelioration. They think of that image all right. And so then they think of wolves and leadership and assertion. And there's a lot to unpack with that. All right. We can go in a thousand different directions. And again, this is where my anthropology degree comes into play, because I love to unpack this kind of stuff. How did we arrive at this idea um, that wolves are X way? And then ergo my, my dog, who is more similar to wolves, um, is also x way right so people see this national geographic image of wolves who are covered in blood snarling and they hear those concepts of like alpha right or, or dominant male and um dominant female and then they get this idea that their husky is more similar to wolves um than a pomeranian and 
maybe in some ways, you know, they're, they're right, right? The Husky is bred selectively for a lot more independence, for endurance, for speed, for range. Wolves are not bred for any of those things, but do have naturally all of those things, right? Whereas your Pomeranian was designed to be smaller and orangier and fluffier, and that's what we got. So in the spectrum of wolf, husky, Pomeranian, yes, your husky is going to be a lot more similar um, to a wolf than the Pomeranian is going to be, but that doesn't mean that they are the same, right? And they're not the same primarily because of that intentional selection, that domestication process. So uh, wolves are the raw material of the dog. Every dog that you've ever known and every dog that you've ever loved and every admixture of every kind of dog that you can imagine is raw material comes from a wolf or the most common, you know, a, a genetic ancestor um, of the wolf. Okay. Several thousands of years ago, anywhere from 13 to 30,000 years ago, depending on which kind of evolutionary clade you're, you're looking for. Okay. Uh, and so with the domestication process, obviously, we selected specific criteria that we wanted to increase or decrease, and we bred dogs for those things. So some dogs, sighthounds, we've bred for more inclination to chase, part of that predatory sequence, right? Some dogs, guardian breeds, we've enhanced the eye stock uh, or, you know, the stare down component of it, right? And wolves have all of these things. So it's not to say that there's not a little bit of wolfy behavior or similar body language in your Pomeranian as there are in wolves. But um, the way that your Pomeranian is going to behave <laughs> around other Pomeranians or other dogs or in the household is going to be very different than the way that wolves are going to behave around other dogs or in a household um, or around other wolves. Does that make sense? We know this, so that's all pretty common um, information. So in terms of why people think that a certain animal needs a certain type of leadership, there's this, again, idea that the husky is more closely related to a wolf than they see wolves on National Ge Geographic. They hear about these, these dominance fights or these, these um, rivalries that exist. They see all of the images of the animals that are, are flashy. They're, they're sexy, basically. Um, animals chasing down elk or fighting each other because that makes good television. All right. And then um, they project that expectation onto their dog. And, and that's what happens, I guess. So now with packs, I want to talk about packs and dominance. I don't know if we should talk to them at the same time. I'm trying to minimize my questions but yeah because i have adhd man and you're killing me i'm trying but like me too so we're just never gonna talk again over this podcast it's gonna be fine that's like, great I'm it's gonna fine close the screen i'm gonna cry and you guys are like never gonna listen to me really. it's fine all right i swear i went to college and i swear i'm educated it's fine i swear so let's okay. talk about Okay, so in a in a similar fashion, I, I'm kind of what I'm doing is I'm I'm playing devil's advocate for maybe like the person that doesn't know much about wolves, but I don't really know much about wolves, so it's easy for me to do this. <laughs> so, so I have three dogs, and if I take one of those dogs out to the yard, 
and then I take a second one of them out to the yard and then I have all three of them together. And then maybe I switch up the two that are out there. And then maybe I bring a fourth one that is usually not here into the yard. Like the way each of those dogs behaves changes and I see it. Mm-hmm. Like I see them act differently. Like my Labrador will act one way with one dog and then will look like a completely other dog with a, with my Malinois, for example. And my Malinois will look totally different playing with my pit bull than when he's out in the yard with my Labrador. And then yep. if I bring my parents' dog over and throw her into the mix, she, again, almost like an ingredient. And like it's almost like literally like ingredients. And you get different pies every time you bake that into that. Yes. So like, does that prove that like one of them is the alpha male and there's like this weird pack structure and they're all like dominating different freaking like resources in my yard? Mm. I don't think okay. so, but I'm saying like, I don't this think so either. <laughs> but I, I'm not. That's just what I'm saying is like, but I think that might be what like the layman is picking up on. Yes. And then they're like, there has to be something. And then like what you were saying before is when you don't really have the answer or the knowledge, you kind of just go to like what you've heard, which is like, oh, like that dog must be the dominant one or my dog must mm-hmm. be submissive. So like, if it's not these labels, then like what, like, what do you think is happening there with dogs? And then do you see that type of stuff with the wolves? Yeah. So first and foremost, packs, packs of wolves are family units. Okay. So um, they are a breeding pair. So mom and dad, and they're going to have a litter of pups. A pack, by definition, has to have one male and one female. It can be a minimum of two wolves. So one male, one female can, in fact, be a pack. Um, But most of the time, your pack is going to be a breeding pair. They're going to have a litter of pups. So let's say they have three pups. Those pups, by default, grow up taking all of their social cues from mom and dad. All right. So mom and dad, because they are teaching little wolflets everything they need to know about how to wolf, they are in that context, the dominant pair. Right. Um, Because the subordinate individuals or the youngsters are looking to those individuals for information, for security, for food. Right. Those are all resources. All right. So really what dominance is, is who has access to what resource, how often with whom, under what context, and 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 when, right? And it can fluctuate, all right? Also, dominance can be a deferred behavior. Dominance is not something that is always asserted. Sometimes dominance is given, all right? But the difference, um, and I'll, I can get more into that in a second. I can tell you some stories about the animals that, that I raised and when I have seen that. Um, but the first thing to understand, again, is that wolf packs are family units. All of those animals, generally speaking, are genetically related to each other or will be my cat causing just chaos. And did you hear that giant yeah. shit storm in the background? I don't yeah. even know. He just knocked down. <laughs> I'll go. I'll go look at it later. So <laughs> generally speaking, um, all of these animals are, are going to be genetically related or have the... Um, ability to be genetically related as in they're going to breed okay whereas dogs uh, or households full of dogs are are not genetically related they have not come together under natural conditions um you got your malinois and then you went and got a labrador and then you went and got a dalmatian and you brought those dogs together those dogs are not choose that's to be together in that particular situation 
And in contrast to a wolf pack structure, mom and dad chose to be together. And there are instances of solo wolves encountering uh, potential mating partners and being like, no, you're that's not it, fam. And like passing up on them and they go and they actually choose uh, the individuals that they that they want to engage with. And then they reproduce uh, with with that pair. So just a, a different makeup uh, in, in wolves than it is in dogs in the household to start. And I think that that is um, really important uh, to notice that wolves choose the individuals that they want to spend time with. There's actually some research out about that as well uh, that I that I wanted to bring up on this podcast. I wrote his name down so I don't forget. Uh, his name is John Benson. And he has an article about the environmental drivers of social cohesion in wolf packs. And I think that that is really pertinent to the to the question that you're asking, essentially, is like, um, how are these social dynamics formed and, and what affects these social dynamics in wolf packs? Uh, and we're talking about the word cohesion specifically in his research. And in, in your question, you're talking about cohesion as well. You know, I'll bring one dog in and then... Um, well, then when the three dogs are in the yard, these two dogs tend, tend to spend more time together and then the other dog's kind of off on his own, but I bring a fourth dog in and that completely changes the dynamic of who hangs out with who, that's cohesion, right? Um, and so wolf packs in the wild, smaller wolf packs as family units are generally gonna have a higher level of social cohesion. Whereas larger packs, uh, individuals with more mouths to feed that might span a larger territory, uh, or packs that are made up of individuals that are genetically related and then some cousins or half cousins or aunties or uncles or maybe potential boyfriends or girlfriends get incorporated into that pack, there tends to be less social cohesion uh, in those groups, okay? So he's, he does a lot of research on these different environmental factors that drive um, the amount of time that individual wolves will and will not spend around other wolves and the whys of that. And this is the same reason um, that your dogs may or may not spend time with another dog is obviously what's changing in the environment. And that is usually access to resources. Uh, when you have a small yard and you have more dogs, well, then there's less space. Space is a resource, right? Or you have two dogs and only one water bowl. Well, that water bowl is a resource. You have three dogs and now there's only one water bowl. You might see that two dogs kind of go in on that third dog over that particular resource. So right, just depending on what's available or the um, arrangement of the environment is definitely gonna affect the individual dynamics that happen, all right? But again, the, the primary difference between dogs in the household and wolf packs is that dogs in the household are not, um, they, they're created by us, the, the dog guardian, by, by, the, by the owner. Whereas wolf packs in the wild are more of a natural, fission fusion opportunity, um, which is why you're also seeing a lot of research come out right now about similarities between street dogs and social dynamics and uh, larger wild wolf packs. Okay. So depending on, and as, as I mentioned, this is, I have a lot of answers to this question because it's a good question and there are uh, many variables that, that answer your question. So I'm sure you're going to edit it however you want to, but no, we're leaving it all. No, we're probably going to leave it all, honestly. <laughs> we're going to leave it all, honestly. Okay. So. 
but um wait but so i just want to i want to stop you the only thing the only thing i get upset with and it's this is like me and you together is like crazy because then on your answers i want to like ask multiple questions to yeah. your answers and yeah. then we're just never gonna end so i just want to clarify something because you, you brought up resources and space and then like dogs going after dogs over water so then are you are you saying that dogs then are using dominance to control resources like are you saying that at, at I, sometimes they are asserting dominance to control a resource like a water bowl um i think so again i don't want to get crucified over this but um i think dominant well i know that dominance does exist we know that oh. dominance oh my god i we're, said we're taking it. we're editing this out that's it. Mark it. Scott, what is this? Go. An hour I, no, I'm glad that in. I'm actually glad I'm glad you asked the question I was planning on asking because yeah. we didn't actually define. I mean, you did in your long answer. You did define I'm it sorry. in there, but no, but I yeah, love I, was, I love the way she's answering all this. Yeah, no, I, no, like, I, this is great. I thought it was. So, I thought it was so, yeah, I, yeah. I, yeah, I wanted to just. I did want. Uh, I did want to try and get like maybe a definition so that way everyone hears what you're saying, so we're on yeah. the same page and not assuming what you're saying. Um, she did say that dominance yeah, was yeah. like controlling yep. resources. So. Yeah, you yeah, were saying it, it, it correlates to resources. access to resources and the uh, who controls a resource more often, you know. So, um, uh, who who gets access to what resource, how often, and with whom? Okay, um, dominance can can be kind of boiled down to with wolves and. Um, then we would say that dominance is also not a permanent state of being. All right. That's also really, really important. And so earlier I said, you know, dominance can be deferred. All right. So what I meant by that, I'll use an example of the wolves that I've raised. Um, we had in the pack of five, we had one uh, female pack of four, excuse me, one female and um, three males and uh, the female is a resource. She's the, she is an intact, mature breeding female. She's a resource, right? Um, the three males are a resource to her, <laughs> okay? So you would see uh, some lateral poking at, sometimes threat display, sometimes I'm gonna use the word aggression, but it wasn't true agonistic intent to harm aggression uh, because again wolf packs are very uh, tight-knit they're social units they need each other to, to survive uh, this is a species that needs a lot more collaboration and cooperation instead of competition um, so they have enough competition just by way of being in the wild and having to deal with other wolf packs and other predators and humans and, and natural disasters they don't need additional conflict in competition within their social unit. So they try to avoid it when they can. But being that this pack had three adult mature males and one adult female, uh, you would see some infighting at a low level uh, between those males because the female was a resource. Um, the female really seemed to en enjoy that. She would actually flirt with and um, appease all of the males sometimes simultaneously and she would get up underneath him so there's a lot of wolf behaviors in an ethogram i'm about to spill out so if you need me to really define or what i'm about to say um let me know but uh you might see she might like pin her ears back and she might squint her eyes and 
kind of snake her way over to the males and put her head up under one of their one of their chins and she would do a lot of lick licking uh lip licking under their jaws a lot of squeaking she would tuck her tail she would curve her body in a c formation she'd flip over on her belly she'd have really loose front paws and she'd kind of just paw at one male uh to draw the attention of another male and so then the other male would come over seeing that this female was down on the ground and acting very silly and uh the male approaching would want to come and, and do some inguinal sniffing on her and do some ears back, some cute little flirty behaviors with her. And then the male that she was initially interacting with would do some pilo erection. So you'd see him get really stiff. You'd see him slowly turn his head over to the approaching male and do some eye contact. Wolves are exceptional in their body language and their micro expressions of another article. I want to throw at you about that in a second. Um, and being able to communicate long distance in really small scale body language um, so he might cut his eyes at this other male, get really stiff. You'll see all that pilo erection or that's hackles for you guys uh, come all the way up across their back. And then um, you might see some, you know, just some little of like lick, raising his lips uh, up at, at the other male or pushing his whisker beds forward. We've seen all these behaviors in dogs. And then as that male would start to get really agitated, the female would get out from underneath him, stop appeasing him, run over to the incoming male and do the exact same thing and would escalate the first male to go into an, a defensive, like space increasing uh, type assault on this male. And she, you, she was just overjoyed with it. You, her tail would start wagging and then she'd go and she'd run and she'd do the same thing to the third male. And then she'd bring them all together and she would just set them upon each other one after another over and over and and over and over and over again. I've seen this happen at a bar a couple of times. Yeah, right. Okay. This is so... like a wolf <laughs> thirst trap. Right? Yes, That's and she doing. and she lived for it. She surely did. It was a super fun game. Uh, and so one male would go after another, and then she would turn around. Uh, the female would then turn around and uh, kind of pop off at the very first male that she was flirting with. So of the three, she chose one male to engage with, and which drew the attention of the other two males. And so then when that male tried to defend the, his perceived resource, which is the female, uh, from the other two males, that female just decided, ah, just kidding, I changed my mind. And then she went after him and she drove him away from the other two approaching males, <laughs> right? So people would say, well, which one is dominant? Well, who's dominant? Is it is it the, the male? Female. Yeah. <laughs> Seems <laughs> right. like the female is winning this one. <laughs> right, she, she, she because, and so, but again, so the female is a resource, right? So I, I have a point and hopefully you guys will be able to deduce it and hopefully I'm I'm going to make some sense. But uh, so the female is a resource, but then the female also had resources herself, which were the three males. She had access to more resources, right? So she had the attention of all three males. She also had the ability to redirect all three of those males to really whatever means to an end she, she wanted to, right? And so a lot of people would say, oh, well, the first male who was posturing and had all his hackles up and, and hard stared the other male and growled and lunged, he's the dominant one. We'll say, well, well, why would we think that, right? And we would think that because just a lot of uh, the ways that our own socialization has occurred, right? We live in, generally speaking, a world that values like a, a male-dominated view, right? And so there, that idea of dominance also comes very skewed uh, in the favor of uh, male animals, right? So we don't tend to look 
at um, females being able to be dominant. When people think of an alpha wolf, they don't often think of a female wolf. They think of a big, strapping, muscular, burly, strong-ass wolf, right? <laughs> um, but that's not the case because it's all about access to resources. She had more access than those other animals did. And in that particular context, we would say she was the dominant individual. But in the greater context of that pack dynamic, she is the dominant female because she is the only female, if that makes sense. And so people would say, well, who's the dominant male? And that was a tricky question because we didn't really have a dominant male. We would say, well, in what context are you asking? So in the context of um, the dominant male in terms of flirting rights with this particular female, uh, it was a male uh, wolf. His name was Mani. It's my, actually my favorite wolf. Uh, he was, he just kind of had a cantankerous attitude. <laughs> he's not a very nice individual um, to other wolves or, or to his human handlers. But the female in the group preferred his company. She liked to spend a lot of time with him. So we're talking about cohesion. She spent a lot of time with him. Her time is a resource. He had the monopoly on her time. Okay. So in who is dominant over Kiwa, the female wolves, time it was money but who is dominant or more dominant in the grand superstructure of the pack between the males it was his brother who was aspen who would try to control his brother money's access to kiwa's time through his behavior so um, doing a lot of agonistic displays pushing him away from the female um, teeing off on him pinning him down all of that nat geo stuff that we like to see a lot of ritualized aggression um, that was utilized to suppress the other male's ability to spend time with the female but it didn't stop the female from spending time uh, with that male so in terms of like which wolf gets to spend more time with the breeding female that was Monty. and some people might say well then he's the dominant one because her time is a very valuable resource but then aspen um Hat was more dominant when it came to food resources so when food would come into the environment uh, he was the first one onto the food and he would actively push other individuals away, even the female who in other contexts was more dominant than the three males. He would absolutely wail on her if she tried to get in the way of, of his carcass feeding. And he would push every individual off of that food until he was satiated. And then only when he was satiated would he allow other individuals to come in and, and eat. So in that context... Aspen was the more dominant one. Does that make sense? Now, did any of these three males ever meet with the female? And then would that kind of prove which one was most dominant? Um, in this particular pack, no. None of those males had um had bred with the with the female because we didn't we didn't want them to breed. So we actually removed Oh, so her. I was gonna ask. So they they couldn't. They couldn't even if they wanted to. Oh no, they could. She so we had her on um a hormonal contraceptive so that she could not oh, okay. produce. But additionally, we did not want them to actually be able to breed and tie because there is some data that says that's, you know, a lot of oxytocin bonds, a lot of neurochemistry changes with them. And we didn't want to um, make we didn't want to change the dynamic of the pack that we had, because really they were they were quite wonderful and they and they really got along. But I'm sorry not to be gross. Like well, she was on some type of a hormonal thing that made the the wolves not even want to try or did they like actively meet with her, but it just wouldn't make her pregnant. 
Um, she didn't ever go into estrus because yeah, of the. I was going to ask. I was just so saying then, so then they never even would have so, wanted but, to. Right. So this pack did not. Um, they they courted her. They flirted with her. Um, they tried some like pre-mating behaviors with her, but because she was not an estrus, she was actively rebuffing them. So she okay. was being like, absolutely not, and maintaining her resource. Right? Oh, that's interesting. And, I'm wondering how that would have changed if she wasn't on that. Well, so we have we have other examples of, of wolves that have um that have bred. So wolves, um in the past we had one female and she had had um a litter, and she actually bred with every male in the pack. All right. Yeah. And so the, yeah, how this is not doing? uncommon. Okay. So that you know, another another misinformation piece that's out there about wolves is that oh like wolves mate mate for life or you know wolves are monogamous or whatnot and they do have well, you said they're family family structures right right so, but then so they're, they're family all units so like yeah of course in the construct of like mom and dad and three offspring of course mom of course. and dad wolf are going to be the ones who are mating because they don't want to mate with their offspring Right. Mm -hmm. But if it's a situation like it was with our pack, where we have three males, two of them are brothers and one of them is an unrelated male. And then the female. Oh, and the female in this pack was also. So she was um, the sibling to one of the males. And then she was unrelated to to two of the males. So she really she had a great relationship with her brother, but she did not want to breed with her brother. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but she liked to spend a lot of time with her brother, which put him in opposition to the unrelated male that she liked to spend a lot of time with right uh they were kind of those two males were constantly quarreling for the resource that was this individual female's time all right um, but the motivations for that were probably very different um, but she liked to do a lot of courtship behaviors and flirting behaviors with the two males who were brothers but were unrelated to her okay so in a situation uh, that we had in a, in a different pack, we had another uh, female, mature female wolf. She had a litter of puppies and she had several males available to her uh, in the pack. And she bred with every single male, much to the chagrin of the more dominant male at the time. So he actually, um, she tied with the brother of the, um, we'll, we'll use the term alpha in this context, the perceived alpha male of the pack at the time. And then the perceived beta male of the pack of the time, she actually tied with with the the quote unquote beta male there, and um, his brother, the alpha male, came over and just beat the heck out of him while he was tied with the female. Female didn't care; she didn't care. He did not go after the female, right? So the more dominant male didn't take his vices out on the female wolf because he can't control her and he won't because she is a resource to him. He mm -hmm. laterally aggressed against the other male who was actively in the process of mating with that female. Did, 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 that didn't stop him from mating with her. It didn't stop, you know, the female from mating with that individual and then going off and courting all of the other subordinate males in the pack. All it did was just incense the more dominant male to then go around to all of the other individuals in the social unit and do his best to squash their attempts to mate with what he perceived as his girlfriend. Does that make sense? No, yes. Makes, yes, it makes sense. And I want to bring it back to dogs now and dog training because yeah. it's interesting and it's something that, you know, like the last year mm -hmm. I've went from having one dog to three and I have a Malinois puppy and, you know, Malinois are just so closely related to the wolves. So it's like basically I have a wolf here. No, I'm kidding. 
<laughs> yeah, you totally do. <laughs> no. So we're talking about we're talking about controlling resources. Um you're you're talking about with uh, the wolves and the things that they're doing. So there and and from what I'm hearing that you're saying, it sounds like dominance is not like a dog is dominant it's more like fluid like it could very it could fluid. be yeah. switching in the situation or the resource like like you're like you were saying like some of the wolves might be very i don't know i don't know if the right way to say like dominant over food but then maybe not with like other you know like a yes. female wolf but then it could switch um and then it can change and then you the, the it sounded like the wolves in your stories didn't even know where they were at at some points like they're kind of mm-hmm. like it's it's the roles are reversing um so then i guess with dogs could there be a dog that is more apt to displaying dominant behaviors and yes. then yeah okay because yes. that, that's, that's what i that's believe where too. i was getting at with my with my whole story and, and thank you you summarized that really nicely is that yes Dominance is very fluid. And again, I said dominance is not a permanent state. So then, you know, conversely, yes, it would be very fluid. And um, whereas dominance kind of centers around what that individual animal cares about. So some of the wolves are going to care more about food. Some of them are going to care more about mating. Some of them are going to care more about their personal space. And whatever it is that they care more about, they are more likely in that instance to leverage themselves all right and Uh so then um you have two you have wolf a and wolf b at a carcass and they they are both very hungry but wolf a just happens to be a lot more hungry that day he might take it there he might escalate the situation and then wolf b is like you know what i'm gonna let you have that one that's dominance deferred okay wolf Mm. a said hey don't i I am willing to fight for this. And then Wolf B was like, hmm, I'm also willing to fight for this, but not actually that much. You know what? No, I I can let you eat. So that behavior was given, not necessarily asserted. So a lot of people think that uh, dominance is going to be the dog who's like actively pummeling the other dog, you know, who's just kind of lording themselves around the space, picking fights all of the time. That's not always the case uh sometimes those animals are animals who are seeking to access resources who are seeking to procure resources instead of animals who have secure access to existing resources um if that if that distinction um i think i'm i don't know if i'm misunderstanding you but i'm like so then if if like, is it possible, I don't know if you've ever seen this, where, like, if a wolf has access to so much resources that it actually doesn't care as much about, lo- like, I think that's what you're saying with, like, the hunger. And then that's where that whole thing about, like, dominance kind of seems strange. Right. Because, like, if you're hungry, like, if you're a starving wolf and maybe your health is bad, you might fight more over, like, a scrap of meat. But, like, does that mean that you're does that mean that you're more dominant or is it just that you're in a position where you're gonna be more desperate? I think it's in a position where you have access to that resource. So you'll see some animals will access a kill. They're more subordinate animals will access a kill and they might be eating first. And then a, um, and this is also, I use the phrase more dominant because then you, like you said, are Mm. there, are there dogs or are there individual animals who tend to, um, 
access more resources more often? Yes. And so then we would say that that animal tends to be more dominant or the dominant animal because they tend to control the food and the space and the mating and the play more than the others, even though there are instances in which the other animals do sometimes have dominance uh, over a particular resource. It's just not in it in trends over time as consistent as another individual. All right. Um, that, to answer your question and then and then do you feel that when there are um acts of conflict it is happening from the like quote-unquote dominant wolves or is it happening among some of the subordinates like does it seem like the wolf that is getting access to resources more frequently like no longer has to really even do much outwardly gotcha um yes and no it really just depends on so every every animal is an individual. Every animal is an individual. So you can have, you know, wolf behavior, and then you have individual variances on wolf behavior within each and every single wolf pack. So no one wolf pack is going to behave exactly the same as another wolf pack, because all of those different animals are just that. They are different animals. Have I seen instances in which animals have so many accesses to access to resources that they're just pretty blasé? Yes. Um, and we we have uh, in this the pack that I raised, one of the males, the actual um, the actual brother to the female. He was a lot like that. He loved food. He was a very large male. He's 120 pounds. Uh, very, very large male, loved enrichment devices, loved toys, anything that he could shred and tear up. He was always the first one on the scene for that. And he would very vehemently defend that. Um, from other wolves. But those are really the only things he actually cared about. Um, he didn't really try to insert himself between the two uh, brothers in, in terms of attention um, for the female. He would laterally aggress at the one brother who was um, the one that was the preferred male for the female, only in the context of his sister being around. Otherwise, he couldn't really give two hoots about him. So he ended up being, you know, kind of the lower ranking individual, but not because he was a big weenie or because he was super submissive, but he just didn't, he didn't engage. He did uh -huh. not react when another male would come up and, um, you know, if it would, well, he would react because they're always reacting, but he, he didn't escalate situations ever, but he never really appeased the other animals either. He was just kind of like, all right, whatever. And he, and he walked away. <laughs> So, right. So that would be an animal who's quite, quite comfortable, I would say, in his in his social dynamic and the access to resources um, that he has. Now, when he wanted something, he was very much willing to leverage his body um, against it. But he was not a higher, a high ranking individual. Does that make so, sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Um, I, it was I, I actually liked that I got to sit here and just listen to the two of you because as you guys were just chatting away, I'm just thinking about everything. And so I want to know, like, how can we or just anyone, like, how can we find out, like, where, what is the good information? And I know that this is kind of a, like, it's kind of a interesting question, because we could look at it from the dog training and dog behavior uh, industry as well. But where can you find the like good information on wolves? Like, 
like I was saying before, I don't know. Like I was watching the Chimp Empire on Netflix. I don't know if it was all accurate, if it's considered good information or not. So like, how can I'm listening to all the the information you have and everything that you're saying. And like, my mind is going in a bunch of directions and I'm a little overwhelmed by it, by how much there is. And so I just wonder like, how can someone like me find what is good information? What is the right information? Because like you said, like I was kind of bringing this up earlier you said that they're one of the most studied species out there, and yet there's so much misinformation. Yeah. So the first place to look um, would be with wolf biologists, people who have spent their entire lives and careers studying them in natural conditions. We can sit here and talk about the wolves that I've raised all day long, but we have to understand that those are socialized animals that have grown up around people, that they have been exposed to things that... um, humans do all of the weird and wonderful things that humans do for their entire lives and even though um they are not intentionally bred they weren't selectively bred in the way that our dogs are selectively bred they were still exposed to um things intentionally Mm. that affect their behavior um similar to the way that we would intentionally expose our puppies to things to affect their behavior now the, the why of why we did it is to encourage uh, just long-term health and comfortability in a, you know, in a managed care um, environment, but there's really no parallel for studying their behavior um, under natural conditions or, or in the wild. So there's a lot of information out about that. Um, Dave Meach is the founder of the International Wolf Center uh, in Ely. Minnesota, and he has spent decades studying wolves, uh, both in managed care situations and in natural conditions. He focused uh, predominantly on Arctic wolves. He's also uh, the man and the legend behind the novel The Wolf, uh, which is uh, one of the main sources um, for the alpha phenomenon, okay? Um, he did not actually, David Meach did not actually coin the, uh, the term alpha. I believe that was a, a scientist that he had cited within that work. Um, but it, it caught on like wildfire within, um, human cultures and subsequently like alpha theory and dominance theory and all of these like very masculine, very linear, very, um, rigid, uh, projections of of social structure with wolves and then um, by proxy dogs kind of just flooded the the media and in the contemporary um, knowledge uh, base. Okay, so he's then since published many many books about wolves after that and has come out and kind of um, fine tuned what he meant uh, when using, when using those phrases. So, uh, wolf ecology and behaviors and the book that he has published with, uh, another wolf biologist scientist, Luigi Boitani, uh, and pretty much the premier wolf knowledge. Um, obviously Doug Smith is, um, was the leading wolf biologist in the Yellowstone wolf project. He was there in 1995, uh, when wolves were initially reintroduced into Yellowstone and was kind of the guy for studying uh, all of the 
the behavioral trends and the population trends and the expansion and, and contraction of all of the wolf packs in, in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem since 1995. He just recently retired uh, from his park service, but has published many, many articles and many, many books and, and has thousands upon thousands of hours of uh, hands-on and observational experience with wolves under natural conditions in a variety of, of situations, uh, um, very different from captive management. So additionally, you can look at um, researchers that are doing um, small-scale projects like Denali National Park, they, anywhere that has wolves, that's what I'm telling you. you. You can look at a map and say, where in the world are there wolves? And there will be wolf biologists studying what they're doing. There, there will be. Um, in terms of just their general body language and overall social behavior, that is very, very, very well studied, largely by people like Luigi Buitana and David Meech, who have made uh, textbook after textbook after textbook of, of their behavior. So that's where you would start. Um, if you're really just wanting to learn, like, what do they eat? Where do they live? Why do wolves do that? Start there, <laughs> okay? If you want to learn more about, um, you know, in population differences or, you know, environmental differences between, like, the eastern wolf, you know, and the, the Mexican gray wolf, ask yourself again, where do these wolves live? Cool. Mexican gray wolves are going to be in New Mexico. I'm going to look and see who's doing the work on those wolves in that area. There's tons of stuff. If you're curious about the differences between red wolf genetics and eastern wolf genetics and Mexican gray wolf genetics, that's really easy. You know, you can, again, look at the red wolf coalition and, and everything that they're doing for species survival and protection and all of the ecology um, <clears throat> and behavior that they're studying in the red wolf. And you can start there. Look for where the animals are in the natural world first. Okay. And then go to your PBS and your Nat Geo stuff like second. Go to the, go to the, the actual science and the literature on them first. And then if you're not satiated with that, then dig through all of their references. Who did they get their information from, right? That's the beauty of the bibliography, right? Just just take a highlighter and anything that catches your fancy, highlight it and, and go look it up. Um, I would avoid largely any kind of clickbaity article, USA Today, any kind of Psychology Today article, and unless you are familiar with the um, original source material of this kind of stuff. So like that um, article I thought we were going to talk about, which is the one with um, oh, yeah. Mark Beckoff, who is, yeah. he is a wolf biologist, but he is a biologist, um, which the title of the article was Alpha Wolves Are Real. And the internet lost their mind over it. Dog training community absolutely lost their mind over it because we've spent a really long time unconditioning ourselves and unconditioning our clients from this alpha theory concept because it is very problematic, because, again, it is very linear, because it is very masculine-centered. There's just a many, many things wrong with it that don't actually reflect real behavior of the individual animals within their real conditions. Um, and so that was just sensationalist. Right. And a lot of people read it and said you used it to kind of justify uh, methodologies that maybe are not uh, best practices. Right. With with working uh, with animals and it just caused a whole big stir. But if you look through some of the people that he has cited, you can see that uh, most of those people are, in fact, very experienced individuals with wolves under wild conditions. And that's that's really important. Um, 
not to diss the old not to diss the work that I've done and the own training that I've done with with animals under managed care situations because that's really valuable too if you're looking to replicate a specific sequence or you're looking to prove a particular theory uh managed care facilities are are really really great but when you're wanting to know like uh why do how wolves survive and you know what behaviors that they do um serve x purposes for survival you cannot find that information anywhere better than than people who study them in, in their wild conditions. Um, and then zoos, you know, zoos and aquariums, wildlife education facilities like Wolf Park, who have kind of dedicated their existence to studying uh, the more nuanced communication patterns of wolves, being able to see those animals up close and personal um, is really valuable um, as well. But I would, uh, I would kind of avoid any of the uh, clickbaity articles that talk about talk about why you know anything that's like why dominance theory is justified or like alphas aren't real or alphas are real tm the the hmm. redux just if you if you aren't familiar with wolves just skip it you know just skip it and, and start back at the uh the biology basics for sure so how is how is working with wildlife changed maybe your the way that you view the family dog or the way that you work with the family dog? Um, so again, wolves, wolves aren't dog. <laughs> yep. Doofus, my spotted doofus hound. Um, so, <laughs> he's so cute. He's so dumb. He doesn't have a <laughs> Not one brain cell went to smarts. They all went to handsomes. <laughs> um, so um dogs dogs again aren't wolves wolves are not dogs so like i was saying earlier you know in the interview domestication made the dog natural selection and nature made the wolf okay so wolf is the raw material of the dog everything that we know about dogs has some level of connection to wolves but depending on the kind of dog and depending on how long ago that connection was made that that similarity can be very very large very very large um or um or pretty small. So working with, so I, and I got my start working with dogs first. I was working with dogs yeah, first. Yeah, that's why I was kind of asking the question. Like I know um, that you started with dogs first. Yeah, so I was, a, I was a certified dog trainer. And again, I, I was working in the dog rescue and I was working with all these border collies and all these Australian shepherds and they all had the same problems. You know, they were biting the heels of children or, you know, they were chasing after bicycles or they were chasing ceiling fans and spinning in circles. And all of them were doing it. And I was like, well, there's got to be a reason. But then I was 19 years old. I, you know, I just loved dogs. Uh, so, so, you know, there's got to be got to be a reason. And that was kind of what catapulted me into wanting to become a dog trainer, wanting to learn as much as I could um, about these about animals in general. And dog training was just kind of the end that I had um, to do it. And uh, the dog that I had growing up, you know, in college shortly after running this rescue, who's a he's a rescue Welsh corgi. And he was a Pembroke Welsh Corgi, and he was a terror. He was just absolutely atrocious. He was very dog reactive, very barrier, uh, lots of barrier frustration, extreme resource garter, like actively would show his teeth at my partner and I just because, because on a whim, because he felt like it. I, just, a, just a grumpy little dude. All sounds right. Sounds normal and, to me, but yeah, sounds, sounds very dominant. dominant. <laughs> so very dominant. Very, very dominant. 
but you know that's what that's kind of what we thought we we didn't know again i was 19 20 years old i said i this is a problem like this dog shouldn't be behaving this way this is very unlike the foster dogs that i've had i think this is a little bit out of my depth thankfully i had the ability to recognize hey maybe this is a little bit out of my depth and i went to a dog trainer um in the atlanta area with this dog not knowing anything about dog training and i said you know these are the kinds of problems that we're having and they had me put my um 22 pound pembroke welsh corgi on a prong collar and he brought him into the center of the room and he said we'll use him as a demonstration dog and i said okay you know do what you gotta do and he was trying to teach him a down and he did the he did the tactic where you can pick you know you pick the leash up and then you just like stomp on the leash and my little corgi he was barely only four inches off the ground i know it's barbaric but you don't know what you don't know right um so my little corgi is barely four inches off the ground anyways instead of uh instead of complying with the down whipped around and bit that man so hard on the foot that he he like dropped the leash and was like what the hell you know and in that moment i said i don't my dog was fine i mean fine okay he probably wasn't fine right but he did not he didn't uh get forced into a down i took the leash from the trainer and i was like you know what thank you thank you for your time and we left and i said i don't know what just happened but i knew that i didn't exactly like it and i said there's got to be a better way to do it there has to be a better way to do it and that that dog and that moment is really kind of what shot me into into dog training was not knowing anything, but seeing something that just said, gosh, you know, I didn't like that. That didn't feel like something that I want to continue doing with my dog. And I then knew I didn't know enough to know how to continue. So then I started to know, I just started to learn. So I just absorbed everything that I possibly could. Um, and started working with my foster dog, started working with this Corgi. He ended up being a great little dog. We had definitely had a really rough start. He taught me a lot. Um, but then I uh, ended up apprenticing under the um, the business owner in Atlanta where I got my training start and she was working with behavior modification and um, dog aggression. And it was it was a lot of behavior modification. It was, you know, is what it was. It was a positive reinforcement trainer, um, which fit that ideology of like, there's got to be a better way to do it. She said, hey, well, this is kind of how I do it. And I was like, wow, that makes sense. That definitely seems like a much better way. Um, the, that limited window that I witnessed with my corgi at the time. So I really got to cut my teeth on all kinds of dogs at that facility. Um, and they were all lovely dogs. And each one of them that I worked with taught me a whole lot. But the thing that I learned the most uh, from working with dogs in the client sector is that most of the stuff that we trained our dogs to do was not for the dog at all. Um, it was very much a client saying, I need my dog to do A, B, and C, or I really don't like it when my dog does X, Y, and Z, and I want this to stop, or I want this fixed, right? And there was very much this mentality of the subtext of that being like that the dog is broken, that there's something wrong with the animal, that the behavior that the animal is engaging in is very inconvenient um, or, or maladaptive. And um you know and we we did it okay so we said yeah we fixed a lot of behavior in that time that i was training at the facility i was there for five years uh i was a certified trainer i was her lead trainer on staff i had a team of four other trainers um that worked underneath me when i when i worked there um and we fixed a lot of dogs i mean i did a lot of really cool things with those dogs but 
um, retrospectively looking at it now, it was all for the client. It was not for the dog. And I knew that I kind of wanted to do more than dogs. I knew I wanted to work with wildlife. I had the opportunity to um, <clears throat> go out to Wolf Park because of my experience with um, these dogs, again, with a more volatile nature um, that I was working with. And um, immediately, it was very different getting up there working with wildlife and seeing like anything that you do with them is for their own well-being, which is, is the primary difference. So, you know, we have these animals that did not choose that life. Our dogs did not choose this life either. So I think that's important to note, um, you know, but animals under human, uh, human conditions or managed care and zoological uh, environments, you know, they didn't, they didn't choose to be there and not all of them are going to be equipped with the skills that they need to thrive in that environment either. Mm -hmm. And so in order for me to do my job well, which was to be their primary caretaker and make sure that all of their needs were met, they had to have some skills that would allow them to accept that care, right? Which was just a very different framework for working in than um, the, the client sector, which was I'm serving the client and it was very um, results driven for the client. It was very operant, can the dog do these things? Uh, for the client and then working with wildlife was more how is this individual moving about their space are they engaging in appropriate behaviors are they engaging with their conspecifics is there anything happening that might uh, hurt them or you know and and then and, and kind of going from there so just really looking at it from um, an animal-centric perspective and what the animal needs um, instead of this kind of service that we that we were providing um, for clients is really the biggest difference um, for me. And that's that's great because there's also not a timeline on that. And that is something that working in the private sector, um, there's always a timeline. You know, you you tell people, we do, we tell our clients, any trainer that tells you they can do something in X amount of time is bullshitting you because for the most part, that is true, right? Um, they no one's going to say, hey, I can totally fix your dog in six weeks, right? Because that's, that's just, that's not going to happen. Um, but with, with exotics, my dog is going ape right now. So I'm telling my partner, I'm like, can you please let my dog outside? <laughs> he just pacing. <laughs> I'm just, just watching him just bing, 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 bing. Um, so with exotics, you know, there's really no timeline into when you want to, um, acquire a behavior, which is, which is really nice. I can say, I see that this animal is struggling with, um, in shifting into an enclosure or going into a new enclosure. Um, I have the in animal's entire lifetime to work on that. There is no, like, I've got to do this in six weeks because then this is when the client is going to be like, well, I paid you for six weeks. And like, where are the results? You know, I can, I can go at my own pace. I can meet the animal where they're at. Uh, and that is great because then you can really enjoy that process. You can enjoy the training relationship with that animal. You really can take the time to observe that animal, what's working, what's not working. Um, take that data, um, if you will. So that's also just a really big difference is that there's not this push to finish the training, you know. Um, and then client sector too, yeah, the, the idea of training being finished as in, 
learning is something that just only happens for the six weeks that you train the dog and then it's done. And if the dog falls apart in five years, it's because I was a shitty trainer and not because they didn't actually maintain anything <laughs> or, you know, actually work with the dog or even practice any of the stuff that we sent them and they go home lesson. They just took it for granted that like, well, yep, dogs trained, right. Working with wildlife and specifically working with wolves. Uh, wolves are, these wolves are socialized, not domesticated and socialization must be maintained. If we did all of this work on the front end with these puppies and we got them super comfortable with all this weird, crazy stuff that humans do, and then we never interacted with them ever again, all of that would fall apart, right? Or it maybe wouldn't all fall apart all at once, but little by little, they would begin to lose those skills. Some of the more hardwired aversion to novel stimuli would return. We would see some of that defensive posturing and fear responses in these animals, and they would not be safe uh, to engage in. Uh, free contact interactions with right so you have to maintain this socialization which means we're constantly working with them when you're constantly working with them you're constantly learning about them they're constantly learning from us um and that that's just really nice right um you're kind of helping an animal become the fullest potential of its animal self right within the affordances of its environment and there's just something really profoundly wonderful um about that you know that is just very very different than than working in the in the private sector which sometimes we teach dogs to do not that it's not fun to do i mean i taught a standard poodle how to be a sommelier for a bottle shop like not that that was not fun to do but like was it necessary to do like did the dog need to do that and did the dog actually know the difference between wine, beer, and bourbon? No, right? But like the dog could do the sequence and that was fun. So I don't want to poo-poo on like training superfluous stuff because like that's fun to do, but it's just very different um, working with wildlife. So then working with the wolves, uh, also you, I learned, I should say, um, how, this is a label, but how forgiving dogs can be for um, a lot of the mistakes that, that we make you know and that's because they were designed to be with us they were manipulated genetically to be forgiving <laughs> for our mistakes and our gaps um and wolves aren't so um working with wildlife you know you you do really have to uh, mind your p's and q's because a single mistake can terminate the relationship that you have with that individual animal, you know, um, single event learning, right? They have one thing happen and that completely clouds their perception of everything associated um, with that individual or that place or place conditioning is a thing that we come into contact with a lot uh, with, with wild animals. It's, you know, um, you had a veterinary procedure happen in an indoor housing area and you, uh, that animal uh, went down roughly. They just didn't take the, you know, didn't take the injection well, or they got really freaked out and they paced and then they don't want to go back into that area ever again. You know, that's, that happens. And that happens a lot uh, with wildlife. So you have to really be mindful um, and, and heavily weigh the pros and cons of, of training them before you actually begin to do it. Because um, you have to ask yourself, like, is the behavior that I'm trying to achieve worth risking the entire social collateral that I've built with this animal. And if the answer is like, well, I don't know, then then you go back to the drawing board and you and you come up with with another plan. 
right? Um, and that's not something I think, and that's something that excellent trainers do do, you know? Um, but I think it's something that is not as often thought about in the, in the private sector because dogs, dogs are just so lovely and we don't deserve them. And they are so, <laughs> uh, so willing to work with us and forgive us. And, and, um, we have a lot more, uh, fuck around and find out room with dogs than you do with a, with a wolf for sure. So probably should undermine all of my professionalism with that phrase, but that's basically what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> you know, is you don't want to be like, yeah, let's just try it with a wolf because it's, that's not, <laughs> it's not going to work out in your favor. So that answer your question, Anthony. No, no. I don't think no, so. It didn't? I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay. I'm sorry. It made me feel terrible about just training dogs for a second, but I'll get No, it. it shouldn't. No, it shouldn't. I love training dogs. You know, I love training dogs, but coming out of coming out of working with I'm wolves, messing with you. <laughs> I um I totally understand all the points you made. Probably way my own dog very differently now. Like I I train my own dog very differently now. And and some of that I'm really grateful for. And then other parts of that I'm really annoyed at because I, I would love to have learned how to train like a really nice, and I, I, I have the resources available to me. I can take the webinars. I can take the continuing education stuff and I want to do that. And I will do that. I've got a lot of them queued up, but um, I've not had the opportunity to train something like a precision heel. All of the dogs that I worked with when I was training dogs in the client sector you know, it was like, can you help me make my dog stop trying to kill other dogs? And we were like, yeah, let's focus on that. You know, so some of the <laughs> the more technical skills, a lot of these like um, tight and right and precision obedience stuff, like that is not what we were doing with the clients that we were working with. We were, we were giving clients um, defensive handling skills. We were giving clients just environmental awareness and, and how to manage their dog's triggers, because a lot of times that's that's what the clients could do. Right. And so I was meeting my clients where I was at. Um, but I was also working with their dogs more on the behavior modification side of things than I was on a lot of this like operant training, you know, and then coming into working with wolves. Um, there's no need to teach a wolf a heel, right? That'd be pretty badass. Now, now they do walk on leash, and I will say they do walk <laughs> on leash better than most people's dogs. They do offer check-in behavior more than most most people's dogs um but like you know that like shoulder target to a femur like really tight like there was no need to do that and the wolves would have no motivation to do that really and it doesn't help them exhibit species specific behaviors or enrich their lives really at all so why would we train it we just didn't need to we trained in favor of other things like allowing them to have medical procedures done non-invasively so obviously i trained vaccination uh, behaviors and, and stand for veterinary exams. We train voluntary train rests. I've trained voluntary blood draws, all of these kinds of things in wolves. Um, but I've never trained something like a tight heel. So now that I have my own dog and he doesn't know how to do any of that kind of stuff, you know, and working with the wolves has made me, um, it's definitely made me a better trainer because it, it's made me more aware of body language and, you know, more aware again of an animal centered approach. But then there are some things that like, I feel like when I was working in the private sector that I just lost a lot of those, I didn't lose the skills, but I didn't flex those skills as often, 
right? And so a lot of that obedience stuff. So yeah, I, I am a professional animal trainer and like my dog is like, he's okay on leash, but he's not amazing. You know what I mean? So there are just some things that I have realized that I care less about with with my own dog than than I used to. Um, and then I realized there are things that I never actually learned how to train um, in working with wildlife. And that kind of bothers me a little bit, you know? So like, it's really cool that I get to work with the animals that I've worked with. And it's really awesome that I have done what I've done with the animals that I've worked with. But um, there is a, a lot about private sector training that I do miss, you know, that, that I do miss because it, it pushed me to, um, to get those results. Right. And to get it right. And to learn and to learn new tricks and to learn new skills. And so it's definitely affected the way that I train my own animals. Uh, I think for the dog's benefit, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. But in terms of just like my joy of training, I love to train. I just, I just like to see if I can do it. You know, I love that. Like I could train that and then I try it. I love that, you know, but with my own dog, I'm just, I'm just not as um, rigorous about it as I used to be. And that's, that's from working with wildlife. So I just think that might not be a positive thing, but it's definitely a change since working with them. If I ask any more questions, we're going to be on here for like another hour, but so go for it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I science i wanted to share uh, i love it no i know this I is don't know so if anthony is ready to go but i like i could keep good. going but i know i'm gonna get in trouble so oh, yeah. what did you just say wait a minute wait, wait, wait. i love because I, I love what how thorough say, she is with all the answers she like i don't want to get anybody i don't know i know i could go anthony's not gonna be able to go is that what you just said i don't know maybe we're gonna keep this in it this will be the intro yeah let's keep going then bitch <laughs> nah, nah, nah. <laughs> um so a couple things that i there are um some people that i wanted to bring up so we were talking about where do we go for uh the science where where can people go to learn about wolves so i've got a couple of um wolf scientists and some articles that they have um well not necessarily articles but i've got a couple of wolf scientists that i've uh, pulled up and um, some of the work that they're doing, which I think is is pretty relevant to to the podcast, really. So the first one, um, in terms of like asking questions about social dynamics and roles and, and alpha theory and dominance theory, you know, again, we have this idea that um, it's all about the alpha male and the dominant male. And it's this rigid, straight line kind of um, structure to to wolf packs and then then projected onto uh, our life with dogs and then even projected into our own social interactions with other people right uh but she's a researcher her name is kira cassidy and she has done a lot of work directly under david meach who again is the founder of the international wolf center and in this uh last um international wolf symposium which just happened in 2022 which happens every five years which is this massive symposium of uh global wolf nerds all get together and um and talk about the research uh the 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 most recent research that's out there on wolves and so she's done a lot of work on the role of elderly wolves in pack dynamics uh and that is really interesting because the work that she does draws attention to the importance of um elders in in wolf packs um for protection and uh serving as um 
I'm going to use the word warriors, essentially, um, which was kind of opposite of what everyone thought. Everyone assumed that the old wolves would stay behind and not really pull their weight and uh, maybe help rear the pups. But she is coming out with some cool information that's showing that it is the um, older male wolves that are actually the ones leading the wolf-on-wolf -wolf assaults against other wolf packs. They're the ones who are doing the most risk-taking behavior and, and the most um, aggression towards other individuals in defense of the pack. And their theory is because, well, they've been around long enough, right, to to learn the territory and to learn what they um, they need to know about how to survive, that they are taking on the role that they're most equipped for, which kind of throws this idea of survival of the fittest, the youngest and the strongest and the most um, dominant kind of a little sideways because you've got a bunch of old grandpa wolves going out on the on the front lines and, and defending pack territory and they're not staying staying back. So I just thought that was really interesting in trying to kind of shift people's ideas away from like um, this just one idea of what what dominance is. So another um, researcher I wanted to draw attention to I did earlier, but again, um, Dr. John Benson. He is the one who did uh, the work on the environmental drivers of social cohesion in wolves. So how much time do wolves spend around uh, other wolves within their wolf packs and and why? What factors affect this social cohesion um, across different territory sizes, across different populations of wolves, across different uh, areas where wolves are in the U.S.? He's stead I think he took data on, I want to say, maybe close to 200 different individual wolves and and uh, over a smattering of different wolf packs to come up with some social cohesion data about why they spend time with each other and what causes them to not. And this social cohesion concept um, is really important, again, when we're understanding that time spent together could be a resource or it could not be a resource depending on the individual animal and depending on the pack. And that helps us inform uh, our opinions on dominance, right? So, and that's Dr. John Benson. And then another one I think that's really cool is um, Alana Hopekirk. She is actually doing research on um, domestication's effect on dogs' ability to communicate with facial expressions in contrast to wolves' ability to communicate with facial expressions. So as I mentioned earlier, wolves have a they have amazing communication abilities, as do dogs. Uh, but I would say that wolves is much better. Um, they're designed to be read at a distance and at close range. A lot of micro expressions, tiny movements in the facial muscles, uh, muscles all around the eyes and the ears and the lips and the whisker beds. And then obviously with the domestication process, we have changed the morphology of a lot of our dogs. So she is researching if dogs are as effective communicators um, using facial features and facial recognition as wolves are and how that might affect social dynamics in dogs. And I think that's pretty cool, honestly. That's um, really cool. Yeah, it is. It is really cool. And that might explain why, you know, why do, let's say, boxers for some reason, to, you know, people would as when I was training dogs, people would say, um, I only ever own boxers because my boxers will only ever play with other boxers. It seems like the only other kind of dog that can like understand them. And you'd be like, well, maybe her research is going to start to kind of put some answers behind that. You know, are 
is the way that we've bred boxers inhibiting boxers abilities to come across as a normal dog to another dog that is less crazy moving <laughs> you know um so her her science is, is is pretty awesome and then the last one is uh uh researcher named Christina Gaylor and uh, it's Christina with a Z. So K-R-I-Z-T-I-N-A, Christina Gaylor. And she presented on the behavioral adaptations of wolves that lived in proximity to humans in uh, Hungary. So small country, but a really big population of wolves and all about the behavioral adaptations of these wild wolves as they are learning to navigate cities and neighborhoods and these coexistent strategies that people are deploying uh, in a really cool case study for wolves and humans, since obviously dogs and humans, we're always kind of wondering how, again, our environments are shaping the way that dogs are behaving. That article just came out about uh, modern dogs' brain sizes increasing, likely due to the complexities of their environments constantly changing by way of being in proximity to humans. So I thought that that was just a really interesting um, article that kind of paralleled some of the uh, dog v. wolf uh, comparison stuff for you guys. And all of these individuals presented at the at the Wolf Symposium, you can look them up by their names. I will um, I can type up their names for you if you want to share. Yeah, we can drop those something. in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but they've all done some really cool research and have worked alongside some really incredible wolf biologists and. Uh, are kind of doing the work and pushing wolf science forward. And again, you'll notice that a lot of this stuff isn't like talking specifically about dominance anymore. It's not talking specifically about like hunting patterns anymore. It's it's really nuanced stuff. It's kind of using wolves as a comparison um, for other studies because again, they're just, they're a really well-studied species at this point. So a lot of the misinformation that circulates around them is, um, I'm going to say probably because of our own unwillingness to think differently about them. Mm. We have this idea of what wolves are, and maybe it's because it's what we want wolves to be, and it doesn't allow us to see them for how they they truly are and what they um what they truly do and it's unfortunately becoming a disservice to our dogs because like i said we are projecting a lot of that um onto them for for whatever reason so Kaz, thank you so much for coming. that was awesome this was so fun was it awesome? yeah. yeah we're gonna have part two oh, because we're gonna have part thing. two because vinny's getting tired so we don't want to keep on going oh but... shut up. you're gonna edit out the part <laughs> oh, no, no, i'm not gonna that? fucking edit it out because right. i called you a little bitch so i'm not gonna okay. edit it out. All right. <laughs> all right. All right. i want part it in two. there so you could hear part my voice two. when you go back and listen to it that you heard me call you a little bitch <laughs> so anyway um where can where can everyone hit you up where can they find you oh me yes um, you. you can follow me on instagram sometimes i like to post some animal adventures um obviously so i work i work at a zoo and we have some pretty strict uh social media policies with the institution that i work at it's very different from when i was working wolf park as in a leadership role there so i was able to show a lot more of my training content and some of the stuff that i was doing but i still have all of those videos up there um if people want to see what it looks like uh living alongside raising and, and training wolves 
Um, you can follow me at Dogs and Death Metal on Instagram. And you can also follow Wolf Park. You should do that um, as well. That's Wolf Park, Indiana on Instagram. They actually just recently had uh, two puppies brought into the facility and they are doing the pup raising process all over again. And um, are I'm sure of going to be posting all kinds of updates uh, about raising those two uh, wolves is the next generation of of wolves um, at the facility. So check them out um, as well. Uh, you can, let me see, Wolf Conservation Center in Smyrna, New York. You can check those guys out. Uh, they deal with uh, red wolves, Mexican gray wolves, and North American gray wolves. So they have a nice population of all three uh, types of wolves that are found in North America and do a lot of conservation and education outreach into the community. So um, they're really wonderful. The Red Wolf Coalition, somebody you can reach out to as well. These guys are all on Instagram. They also have websites. Um, they are the leading organization for conserving the uh, last few Red Wolves that we that we have here. And then uh, the SAFE program. So um Saving Animals from Extinction is an organization that focuses not just on um, wolves, but all animals that are uh, having their populations uh, threatened by habitat uh, destruction or human intervention or other um, issues, disease, what, what you name it, death by other animals. Uh, they do a lot of work, just kind of direct <laughs> monetary assistance uh, to conservation efforts, and that includes the Mexican gray wolf and uh, the red wolf as well. So that's where you can go. And your national parks. Give money to your national parks, guys. So. <laughs> Vinny would know all about that, obviously. <laughs> yeah, because I just traveled to national parks, apparently, yeah. and I'm sponsored by outdoor Patagonia, yeah. Exactly. We're going to spread what... that rumor. That's crazy. I wish Patagonia hit me up. Yeah, well, they might. You don't know. <laughs> We're like Solomon. Solomon shoes. They should give me something. <laughs> At the end of every one of your videos, you just like zoom into your shoe in like the last yeah. frame. You know? <laughs> and just oh, be like, man. this could be made like so much better if <laughs> I could walk so many more miles with my dogs if I had this like sweet pair of shoes. <laughs> <Stop>. <laughs> Do it. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Canine Classroom. If you like the show, make sure to smack that like button, share the show with your friends, and give us a rating. Until next time, class dismissed. <laughs>